I want to begin this morning in Numbers chapter 11. Last week, we learned that part of the background to our understanding Pentecost better is that Jews also celebrated the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai at Pentecost because they calculated that it happened, that the law was given at Sinai about 50 days following the Passover. So think with me just for a second here about this timeline. So the people of Israel were delivered from slavery in Egypt when the angel of death passed over the land and Pharaoh finally sent them away. They crossed the Red Sea and they arrived at Mount Sinai and about 50 days later, they received the law. And then they camped there at Sinai for 11 months. That's how it all started. Those 11 months at Sinai were kind of a time of preparation for the people of Israel. During that time, God's law had been given. Uh, The tabernacle was constructed and dedicated. Moses consecrated all the priests, counted up all the soldiers, organized everyone into their specific tribes. Israel was now prepared to go and take the promised land. And so they pack up and they head out from Mount Sinai. Now, if you recall, just three days after the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, people started to complain to Moses because they didn't have any water to drink. Now, in an example of history quickly repeating itself, just three days after leaving Sinai, the Jews started to complain again, this time because they didn't have any meat to eat. Perhaps as they had been camped there at Sinai for 11 months, the manna from heaven took care of their appetite. But now that they were having to travel, take down and set up camp each day, they now desired some meat to eat. They, perhaps all the extra activity and they just needed some more protein in their diet. We make lots of protein shakes at our house, and so I get it. And this complaint just sort of pushes Moses over the edge. Parents, I think you understand. Just one more complaint, and it just sort of pushes you over the edge. And in verse 14, Moses says to the Lord, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. So the Lord responds to Moses in verse 16 by saying to him, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting and stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that's on you, and I will also put it onto them so that they will help you carry the burden, and you will not have to carry that burden alone. So the Lord does just that. He comes down in a cloud. He takes of the spirit that was on Moses, and he puts the spirit also onto the 70. And when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Interestingly, Joshua, who you know, he's got a whole book in the Bible named after him. Joshua, who was Moses's right-hand man, he had had been uh, Moses's aide since he was a young boy, He was upset about it. 
He didn't like it. Perhaps he just didn't like the spotlight, the spotlight being taken off Moses and put on others. Uh, you know, maybe he was just being a little protective of his guy. But he speaks up and he says to Moses, Lord, stop these elders from prophesying. But then in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 29, here is Moses' reply to Joshua. He says, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. I remember when I was younger, a question that one kid would like to ask another kid was if you could just have one wish granted, what would it be? Moses said, I wish that the Lord would put his spirit on all people. The one who had given the law to all the people wished and longed for the day when God would put his spirit on all the people. Well, in Acts chapter 2, Moses gets his wish. And in response to the marvel of the spirit coming and being given to all the disciples there, the crowd who, who, who is there and who comes to see what's happening, they, they, they're curious. They, they have no idea what's going on. They're amazed. They wonder, what's all this mean? And Peter stands up with the other 11 and addresses that question. Now, I think that Peter's sermon at Pentecost is one of the most important pieces of theology that we have in all the Bible. This, this speech is a game changer. You know, there are, there are certain speeches that ignite and influence movements of people. And the thinking of, of the speech will influence a people for centuries to come. You know, in more recent years, uh, in our own country's history, we have several speeches like this. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address comes to mind. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is another great example of a speech that influences us even today, even though it was spoken years ago. Similarly, Peter's sermon at Pentecost should have that same kind of impact and influence on the thinking and the life of the church even today. And with that in mind, I think it's important enough then for us to spend some time with this speech. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next three weeks studying this sermon together and asking the Lord to give us ears to hear afresh these words that Peter spoke at Pentecost. He begins his speech by telling the crowd twice for emphasis to listen to his words. And what's interesting about the second time that he says it, my NIV 84 translates it, listen carefully to what I say. 
The verb here is used only here in the entire New Testament. It's a verb that means to pay very serious and close attention to something. It means to drop everything and listen up. As my sweet wife likes to say, listen to me with your eyes. This is not listen while you do something else. This is not listen while you multitask. This is listen with a singular focus. Open your ears. Pay close attention to my words. Now, most scholars think that Peter begins his speech with a witty remark in response to comments by some in the crowd suggesting that the disciples were drunk. Essentially, Peter says in verse 15, look at your sundial. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Essentially, what he says here is, you know, who gets drunk at 9 a.m.? Peter's making light of the absurdity of their suggestion. It's kind of like drunks aren't even drunk at 9 a.m. They're asleep. And Jews did not even eat this early in the day, typically, let alone drink wine. Most Jews had a morning prayer time at 9 a.m., followed then by their first meal of the day. So it's a ridiculous remark, and it's critical for Peter to clear their mind of such a false claim in order to open them up to the reality of what they had just witnessed. Because it's not alcohol that's being poured out on this day. This wasn't a giant kegger. The disciples had not all gathered for a big morning tailgate before the Pentecost activities. Instead, what this crowd had witnessed is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit onto all people. Listen to the verbs used to describe the crowd's reaction again in verses uh, 1 through 11. They're bewildered. They're amazed. They're astonished. They're perplexed. Luke is such a great historian, and you get a sense here that as he interviewed eyewitnesses, that's what he did. That's what Luke tells us he was doing. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses, people who were there in the crowd. Luke went and found them and said, tell us, how did you feel that day? What what was the sense when you witnessed this for the first time? And they were bewildered. They were amazed. They were astonished. They were perplexed. And, and, and Luke includes all of those reactions here as he tells the story. They're utterly shocked. They're picking their jaws up off the ground. And so Peter, in that moment of bewilderment, uses Scripture to speak into their surprise. He grounds and, and stabilizes their shock with the reality of God's word. The crowd exclaims, what's what's happened? What does this all mean? And Peter says, all of what you have witnessed is happening according to the scriptures. In fact, the prophet Joel said this would happen. 
Now, if you're not familiar with Joel, Joel was a prophet who ministered in Judah during the reign of King Joash. And he was best known as the prophet who liked to speak about the day of the Lord. That was, that was his deal. If someone mentioned the day of the Lord, everyone would be like, oh, yeah, you've been hanging out with Joel. The emphasis of his short three-chapter book in the Old Testament is the need for God's people to be ready for the coming day of the Lord through repentance. In fact, one of my favorite Old Testament texts about repentance is found in Joel chapter 2, verses 12, through 12 and 13. If I ever have an opportunity to study with someone and the conversation moves to repentance, this is one of my go-to texts. I love this text and talking about repentance with someone. And here's what Joel talks about there in Joel chapter 2, 12 and verse 13. He shares, even, this is how verse 12 begins, even now declares the Lord. See, I can't even get past those first two words without having to stop and talk about it. I love that phrase, even now. Listen, you have not run out of time to repent. The Lord says, even now. You see, the only condition that's placed on repentance is time. There is a time constraint. When the day of the Lord comes, your time is up. But until then, it doesn't matter how many times you've turned your back on God. It doesn't matter how many times you've, you've turned and come to God before. The Lord declares to you, even now. These are such gracious words to us. And if you're watching online today or you're here this morning, perhaps you need to hear those words, even now. There's time for repentance, even today. God wants you to come to him and return to him. Even now, verse 12, Joel says, return to me with all your heart. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. Not because God needs some big outward show of our repentance. God does not need you to prove to him how repentant you are by your fasting and your weeping and your mourning. In fact, God says in verse 13, rend your heart, R-E-N-D. Not a word that I use very often, but I love it. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. Now, I don't use that word a lot, as I said, but what it means is, it means to tear something into two pieces. And God says, as he's talking here about repentance, he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, God is saying, I'm not looking for you to perform some kind of outward display of repentance by rending your garments in two and putting ashes on your head. Instead, I'm looking for an inward brokenness. 
for your heart to break in two because of your pride. For your heart to break in two because of your selfishness. For your heart to break in two because of your disobedience. For your heart to break in two because of your sin. You see, repentance is a work of the heart. And God wants you to return to him with all of your heart, not just some of it, not just part of it, all of it. And Joel exhorts the people of God to repent, to return to the Lord with their whole heart because the day of the Lord is coming. Joel teaches us that the day of the Lord is a great and terrible day when every nation under heaven will be judged and God will set up his eternal and glorious kingdom. The reason that this, there's many reasons, but the main reason, a primary one that I want to talk about this morning, that, that this specific text is chosen by Peter is because Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which is the quote, that's the quote that's used here at the beginning of his, of his speech. God says, in these last days, that's verse 17, in these last days, leading up to the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord at the end of verse 20. So in these last days, leading up to the great and glorious day of the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all people, verse 17, and I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy, verse 18. Remember, Joel is our expert on the day of the Lord. If they needed a conference back then about the day of the Lord, they would call Joel. He would be their keynote. And Joel says, in the very last days, right before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, God will pour out his spirit on all people. Moses will get his wish. And the, and the important contribution from Joel here is that he connects both repentance and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to the coming of the day of the Lord. And Peter begins his explanation about what all this means by sharing these verses from the prophet Joel. And I want us to spend just the remainder of our time together this morning looking at these verses from Joel and looking at five practical takeaways to help us to understand this event better and its impact and its influence on us as people of God. And here are the five takeaways that we're going to look at this morning. The pouring of the Spirit is exclusive. The pouring out of the Spirit is exclusive, it's excessive, it's inclusive, it's subversive, and it's responsive. 
Those are the five takeaways that I want us to, to look at together in the remainder of our time. First, the pouring out of the Spirit is exclusive. It's exclusive. And by the use of this word, I do not mean in the sense that it excludes people. It's not how I want to use the word this morning. I mean it in the sense of the definition that it's limited to that which it is designated. In this instance, it's designated to a specific time. To use Peter's words, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is exclusive to the last days. No other time in history except for the last days has benefited from this kind of pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that we live in what the Bible calls the last days? The last days are the days in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And this time... These last days in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus are marked by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is the time that's been designated and marked by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. God says in verse 18, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And we live in these days. It's really an exciting time to be alive. The pouring out of the Spirit is exclusive to the last days. And we are alive during these last days. Second, so the pour, first, the pouring out of the Spirit is exclusive. Second, the pouring out of the Spirit is excessive. It's excessive. The word that's translated here to pour out in both uh, verse 17 and 18, and then it will also be used again in verse 33, is a word that literally means to downpour. The image is of a heavy tropical rainstorm. It's, It's not a drizzle. It's not a Sunday morning shower. The word is used to describe a torrential downpour that's poured out onto a parched earth. The word illustrates the generosity of this gift, the excessiveness of the gift. It's it's just, it's excessive. And it, it, it didn't happen just on Pentecost. In, um, in Luke's first volume, Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus shares these great words. Chapter 11, verse 9 and 13. Um, and I think it gives an important context to maybe a teaching of Jesus that we misunderstand or we misquote a lot when it comes to prayer. Uh, it's, it's really important to, to, to read this entire text uh, in order to get the context and not take a verse out of context. I mean, here's what Jesus says. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Our Father in heaven is just waiting for you to ask. This gift of the Holy Spirit that he wants to pour out on all his people is excessive. It never runs out. It's a torrential downpour that he wants to pour out onto a parched land of our lives. It's ready to be poured out in excess on all those who ask him. So it's excessive. So it's exclusive. It's excessive. Third, the pouring out of the Spirit is inclusive. God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And just so we will know exactly who he means by the word all, he goes on to describe it with your sons and your daughters, the young and the old. And then this one, even on slaves, men and women. You see, no one is left out of the pour out. There's no category of people which is left out. Both genders, all ages, all social classes. And if you didn't realize this till today, this is revolutionary. Now, the Holy Spirit had been work, the Holy Spirit had been at work among God's people all throughout the Old Testament, but not like this. I began my sermon by looking at the example of Moses and the 70 elders in Numbers 11. And you see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was distributed to a few people on special occasions to empower individuals to accomplish special tasks. But now, in these last days, God will pour out His Spirit on all people. And what's great about knowing that Peter's the one who uses this text in this speech is that Peter, because we know from the story, Peter cannot even imagine at this point, speaking only to Jews who were gathered there at Pentecost, just how far-reaching all people really is. Because as we will learn, it will even include the Gentiles. So, inclusive. Fourth, the pouring out of the Spirit is subversive. It's subversive. Here's what I mean by that. God says in verse 18, I will pour out my Spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Do you you remember the song, 10,000 Angels? You know that song? 
Uh, it was a song that uh, we would sing uh, in the church I grew up in. And I, I have memories standing there next to mom and dad and singing that song. And I got to tell you, there are many songs that this is what's beautiful about music. Um, music has helped shape my theology. You know, we wonder, do our kids get anything from singing in here? They do. Music shapes our theology. It, it shapes our understanding of who God is. And that song, I remember singing that song as a young boy about Jesus on the cross, if you're not familiar with that song. And the chorus of that song goes, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. That shaped my understanding of the gospel. Singing that song shaped my understanding of who God is. And I, I love that, thing, that thought that Jesus could have done that if he wanted to, but that's not what he did. And I, I thought about this week as I've studied this text because with the pouring out, with this kind of outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God could have done all kinds of things. He could have chosen to perform all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders to turn people to him, but that's not what he chose to do. Instead, what God chose to do is to pour out his spirit on his followers so that they'll prophesy. So that their tongues will be loosed to declare the wonders of God. You see, the kingdom of God during these last days, in between the two comings of Jesus, is a subversive movement. It's one that's going to overthrow the nations, not with force, not with military might, but through the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is like a sower sowing seed. And through the declaration, through the announcing of the good news, nations will be overcome. Fifth, lastly, and this is what we'll conclude with, the pouring out of the Spirit is responsive. It's responsive. Let me read again verses 19 through 21. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before this great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are in the last days. Pentecost must be understood as an event that has signaled the end times. The language here is apocalyptic. There is blood and fire and billows of smoke the sun is turned to darkness, the moon to blood. The day of the Lord is coming. And the only condition on repentance is time. There is a time constraint. 
Once the clock strikes midnight, you can no longer repent. Peter addresses this in his second letter, Second uh, Peter chapter 3. He talks exactly about this, maybe even in response to this speech, to this speech being something that had ignited this movement. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that there are people who are asking, where's this day of the Lord that you said was coming? Where's this second coming that God promised? And Peter says in verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 3, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. With the pouring out of the Spirit, the clock is now ticking. The last days are here. The great and glorious day of the Lord is drawing near. You see, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is responsive. And it's a gift, excessive, inclusive, gift for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for these words. We're thankful for this teaching uh, this morning from Acts chapter 2. We're thankful for these ancient words and the life that your Holy Spirit, even today, gives to these words, this, the influence and the impact that years later these words have on our heart um, as they turn us to, to you. They, they return our, heart, our hearts fully to you. Lord, we, we ask, I ask on behalf of, of our church family that you'll pour out your Holy Spirit We are, we are in need, as we sang earlier, of your presence. We're in need of, uh, of you to fill us full. We're in need of that torrential downpour. Lord, we are, we're thankful. Um, I, I pray that the... The, the, the seeds of this word, Lord, will just be implanted by your spirit and will grow in our hearts, that they'll impact and influence us as a community of, of God. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I have to end, uh, you know, I can't end that sermon without, without a call to salvation. Um. Peter, quoting Joel, who, who loves to talk about the coming of the day of the Lord, says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.
If you're here today and you have not called on the name of the Lord for salvation, we want to be part of that. We want you to do that today. We encourage you to do that today. Come to call on Christ as your Lord and Savior, to, to be baptized into the name Jesus Christ, into the name of salvation that we have, that we know is, is, is who saves us. Place your faith in him to repent, to repent, to, to turn from sin, to turn from disobedience, to turn from selfishness, and to turn with your whole heart to him. If, that, if, if, if you're here today and you've not called on the name of the Lord for salvation, I want to encourage you to come and be a part of that today as we stand together and as we sing.